Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, cloud computing is the next line in the competition with China, plus how the Transportation Department tries to bolster a little-known piece of infrastructure. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, Cyber Command has been around since 2010, but it has never had an independent acquisition program until now. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr got the details last week at the TechNex Cyber Conference in Baltimore. Alexandra, how are we today? This great. Thanks, Eric. How are you? I'm good. So what can you tell me about the background on this story? So Cybercom stood up in 2010, and it was not seen as quite as maybe as important as it is today. Then over time, we've seen the threats from the solar wind cyber attack, Log4j, election threats, the kind of cyber attacks we're seeing during the Ukrainian war. And suddenly, Cybercom has a much more prominent role as a military service. And whereas before you saw those cyber threats being addressed maybe by law enforcement, now it's taken on you know a full-blown threat reaction as a military answer. Here's Michael Clark, Cybercom's Director of Cyber Acquisition and Technology, talking about that background. Whereas prior to 2018, principally the the nation's response to cyber activity, malicious cyber activity, was either law enforcement or diplomatic action. But now that we actually saw military threats to our national institutions, our elections, things started to change. Congress redefined what was allowable from a military operations perspective in cyberspace, that now we were allowed to operate outside of a declared hostile zone. And so Cybercom had to buy something, right? So what did Cybercom have in terms of an acquisition ability? When they started, it was really small. The idea is that they they really wouldn't be that involved in it, and that would be farmed out to other services. So the Army was in charge of training. uh, The Air Force was in charge of command and control and their data fabric. And as they were going through this, it wasn't really working. They weren't getting quite what they needed. It became apparent that they would need their own acquisition authority. Here's Michael Clark again. It wasn't until 2016 that the command got acquisition authority, $70 million, and it was going to sunset in 2021. So it was only meant to be there for five years. Then what allowed that to expand, I guess? Well, as they looked at it, uh, Paul Nakasani, the the head of Cyber Command, agreed that they needed to have their own acquisition authority. He went through the Secretary of Defense. He went through Congress. And they started building up a plan to expand and be independent, of particularly of the Air Force. And they wanted to model their acquisition program on special forces. Special forces is kind of known as an acquisition program that's light on its feet. It gets things done quickly. And so that was the model they had going forward. Here's Michael Clark. So working with Congress and with the secretary, we got language that within the next five years, by FY27, Cyber Command will assume the acquisition milestone decision authority over the warfighting platform. An incredible advancement. So now we have the money, the $3.2 billion dollars, We have the acquisition responsibility that's going to be built over time. I'm not going to be able to do that today. To be able to drive, General Nakasone's number one priority for me is help me make a ready force. 
That's Michael Clark, the head of acquisition for Cybercom. We're speaking with Alexandra Lohr, Federal News Network reporter. And so, Alexandra, what does Cybercom need to do to move forward? Well, they've got some big plans, Eric. One thing they're going to do is this year, they're going to start a cyber weapons program management office. And that's going to be built out with the help of the Air Force. They'll reimburse the Air Force and then eventually take it over on their own independently. They plan to have the directorate assume the acquisition decision authority over the warfight fighting platform. And then they have this money. They're kind of ready to get going. But what they don't have is a skilled workforce. Clark says that he has authorization for 24 entry-level positions this year. And those are basically kids out of college. But they're they're there to build a foundation for what he's trying to do. In the end, though, he's really going to need up more staff if he's going to accomplish this kind of ambitious goals. Here's what he had to say about it. I'm aspirational. If I can get the people, that's my Achilles heel right now. And that's why I need to recruit all of you is that to build it is the people part of this is the Achilles heel of all this. By FY25, I want to be able to have that PEO office stood up and and begin doing PEO responsibilities for the components that I'm actually building within the command today. Recruitment in the cyber field remains a challenge for the Defense Department and everyone, pretty much. That was Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Alexandra, thank you so much for your reporting. Thanks very much, Eric. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, how the Transportation Department tries to bolster a little-known piece of infrastructure. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Only a couple of shipyards in the United States can build Navy ships. Hundreds of small shipyards, though, build important pieces of the country's at-home infrastructure. Barges, ferries, tugboats. That's why the Transportation Department, through the Maritime Administration, has an ongoing program of grants to help small shipyards stay afloat, so to speak. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got an update from the Marad Administrator, retired Navy Rear Admiral Ann Phillips. Now, this program is about $20 million this year, but it's a program that has been running for several years, and it's well more than $200 million that have gone to these small shipyards. How do you define a small shipyard, for starters? As you know, we're very excited to have just made awards this year. $20.8 million went out the door to 27 small shipyards in 20 states. A small shipyard is defined as one with less than 1,200 production employees, and there's some additional criteria. They make boats for federal entities uh, or state, local governments that are larger than 40 feet. Or if they're doing exclusively private construction, it has to be larger than 100 feet. But there are many, many yards, as you point out, in this country that meet that criteria. 154 private yards that do building and uh, over 300 that do extremely significant repairs to vessels. So all of them are potential recipients of this grant. So it's not a gigantic industry, but it has a lot of leverage over over the economy. It does. And it also is a reasonably large employer, 107,000 plus jobs in that industry, across the industry, 9.9 billion in labor income, 12.2 billion in gross domestic product contribution. And certainly these are facilities that while they are smaller facilities, they're located all over the country. So they're providing capacity, economic vitality, jobs, and vital need to our broader Jones Act fleet and uh, our U.S. flag vessels and military as well, in some cases, nationwide. And I would add in, in territories and non-contiguous states as well. So lots going on here and, and lots of opportunities. 
And of course, when you think of the Navy, you think of carriers and destroyers and so forth, way out of the scope of, I think we only have two shipyards in the country that can do that. What does the federal government tend to buy then from the smaller shipyards? Uh, the federal government might buy barges. They might buy small patrol craft, special mission craft or vessels, all kinds of things that they would need in and around their facilities, whether it be Coast Guard, Navy, Army Corps, or other entities that would need watercraft. So even the Navy does buy small craft from local shipyards in the United States? They can, yes, certainly. Okay, learn something every day. I mean, you can picture the Coast Guard in the harbors. They have these short boats with a little tiny cabin in the middle, that type of thing. That would be a U.S.-made type of vessel, not in a major shipyard. And the Navy would use similar vessels for patrolling and security in Navy facilities or in other locations. So, you know, very similar opportunities for the Navy as well as your vision of the Coast Guard. We're speaking with retired Navy Rear Admiral Ann Phillips. She is now administrator of the Maritime Administration. And these companies, why do they need grants? What is their economic status or what are the conditions such that the federal government feels they can use grants? A lot of these companies are, as you point out, smaller businesses, and uh, they're very much an impactor on uh, economic productivity in the regions where they are located. So the opportunity for them to receive a grant gives them opportunity to build capacity. It may open up a whole new business line for them, which gives them an opportunity to employ more people and expand sort of the greater economic circumstances of the region where they are. Many of them are smaller scale family businesses, so they may not have a lot of capital available. Although I will point out there is a 25% match for this grant required. So we provide 75% of the funding. The applicant would be prepared to provide 25% of the funding, but it can be a real game changer for a small business to gain an additional capacity or update a piece of equipment so that they can be more efficient and effective in using it. And then they can build and prepare different kinds of vessels that can greatly expand their business opportunities. So it's a real advantage and it's a terrific opportunity. A lot of interest in this grant program every year. And is there the opportunity to maybe recapitalize or update their equipment or processes? Maybe they're switching from steel to fiberglass or vice versa, that kind of thing. Absolutely. That is a part of it. And also to expand the kinds of things they can do with the business line that they follow. So they could improve their ability to build more quickly. As you point out, they could shift the kinds of uh, materials they work with, or they could open up a whole different business line and build a different kind of vessel with different capabilities and different technology. So it's a tremendous opportunity for them. By the way, what about ferries? Is that a big business in the United States? When you think about all the places that have ferry boats, it adds up. Oh, sure. This grant can be applied to small yards that are building any kind of vessel. So there's there's no restriction on the kinds of vessels other than the, the size restrictions that I mentioned earlier. It needs to be above a certain size. Got it. And that 25% match, are you aware whether states or other localities might be able to supply that part to the yard? Is that allowed? It can't be federal money. Sure. Can so, it be state money? As long as it's not federal money where there are different opportunities that can be considered there. Okay. And I guess the state money can't come from federal originally either, if that's the case. Yeah. Then you kind of got money yes. going around in circles. This, Generally, they're providing their own support, but it just can't be federal dollars. Got it. And you mentioned there were some uh, 20 recipients of this year's round. Is this competitive? And what kind of response do you get? It is very competitive. This year, we had 99 applicants asking for over $80 million in funding support. Of course, that's just a piece of it, so it actually generates spending much higher than that. So in that context, you know, the ability to award 27 small shipyard grants out of the $20.8 uh, there's an awful lot of people who didn't get something they asked for this year. 
and I always tell people who have applied and are not successful, please call and ask for a debrief and please apply again. These grants uh, apply across the country, as you know, and it's pretty important that we ensure that people have an opportunity and that they know that their grant will be considered again in the future. And it's also important that we think about everybody has an opportunity. So if you don't succeed this year, you may have an opportunity next year because uh, maybe somebody else in your state got one this year. And so you know we'll be looking to move money to a different place next time. And from the MARAD standpoint, you know, the merchant marine fleet in the United States is kind of up there in age. I think there's still some steam-powered vessels in that whole fleet, the Jones Act fleet. Are those also users of small shipyards in some cases? We're mixing apples and oranges a little bit here. MARAD does run a ready reserve force, which you're aware of. These are very large vessels. They are not small shipyard qualified vessels, uh, except potentially in a repair circumstance. Many of them are steam, the largest steam fleet in the world, and they are, as you point out, aging. However, in the context of smaller vessels that are steam, that is becoming more and more rare because there will be fewer of them. I know specifically of some ferries that are quite elderly that are still steam powered, but that would be almost a niche circumstance in today's world. Most small vessels are diesel or some form of turbo diesel uh, shifting to other kinds of propulsions, jet propulsion, and we're seeing people shift to, uh, you know, electric or or hybrid, which which is a more costly vessel, of course. But the opportunity to reduce emissions is always good and always there. But um, I think in the context of repair, certainly some of these yards do do repairs, and depending on the size of the yard, whether they're less than twelve hundred, uh, they could conceivably be doing repair work on the ready reserve force and qualify for this grant. I guess the steam would be the novelty for tourist that attraction. That would be a novelty. Yes, point, yeah. as someone who loves watching steam locomotives. where they And I am a steam engineer qualified person from the Navy, so I always enjoy visiting the steamships, but uh, it is a dying art. Yes, yeah, so if, if you see an array of 37 dials and knobs, you know what to do with it. I've seen them before, yes. All right. And by the way, what's it like going from a naval career where you commanded fleets at some point to, uh, to MARAD? Well, of course, it's an honor and a tremendous opportunity to command, uh, to be the maritime administrator. Certainly, my uh, largest command in the Navy was Expeditionary Strike Group 2, which is all the amphibious forces on the East Coast. And that was my last command at sea. And I retired from that job. It's a real honor to be able to support and advocate for, to promote for America's merchant marine fleet particularly in the context of our needs and to ensure our economic and national security needs, which, of course, is the mission of the Maritime Administration. And it's an honor to work with our industry, to work with our, our carriers and our labor force that supports the industry, and also to be building new ships, which we are doing here in the Maritime Administration in a U.S. shipyard in Philly Ship, the uh, national multi-mission support vessel that we are building that will be a training vessel for five of the six state maritime academies, but also has a dual hat as a national asset, and we can use it for other needs as the nation might require. It's an honor to be a part of that. It's an honor to maintain our ready reserve force and ensure our support to the Department of Defense there. And it's an honor to be involved in these grant programs that support our small shipyards and to you know meet people in these yards across the country and to work with our ports and waterways staff and, and meet the many people who run ports that where these small shipyards might be located across the country, uh, both brown water and blue water. So um, it's an amazing portfolio, very large portfolio for a small agency. And I'm honored to have this opportunity and thrilled to be here. Retired Navy Rear Admiral Ann Phillips is administrator of the Maritime Administration, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come on Federal News Network, does the GSA have the best data to work with during price negotiations with contractors? But first, cloud computing is the next line in the competition with China. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. It's fair to say federal agencies will never buy commercial cloud computing services from Chinese vendors, but China aims to take the lead in cloud computing worldwide. Some experts warn that could pose yet another competitive challenge to the United States. Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to one of them. Jim Lewis is senior vice president for the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It looks like you've migrated from writing cybersecurity suggested policy for the White House to looking at cloud computing, which kind of is related, I guess. Tell us your thoughts about cloud. Cloud is definitely part of the larger network security picture. And we had Rob Joyce speaking a week or so ago where he said cloud is the future of computing. So if you look at the national strategy, an emphasis on cloud security and emphasis on the move to the cloud is a big part of it. So I don't see a difference between cloud and cybersecurity. The one is the same as the other. All right. And so, again, U.S. companies only buy from U.S. vendors, and there is generally a requirement for U.S. soil-located cloud services. But that doesn't really address the issue of widespread Chinese adoption by commercial entities here in the United States and the establishment of that Chinese infrastructure worldwide to go along with Amazon, Google, and the rest of them. Fair to say? Two things are going on. The first is that if you talk to Chinese vendors, including Huawei, they'll tell you that they expect to regain global dominance, and they think that cloud and 6G are their path forward. So cloud plays a big part in China's plans for dominating global networks. The second part is, is it is a global network. So American vendors, American companies operating in America don't face the risk of using Chinese technology. And let's be clear, there's a there's a definite risk of espionage. It's more than a risk, it's a certainty. But they're going to have to connect to countries elsewhere, and they're going to have to connect to networks in other places. And that's where the risk comes in. Is China pretty much dominates Africa now. Um, they're making big strides in Latin America, and the cloud market is part of that. So this is a continuation of the contest we saw over 5G a few years ago and the centrality of Huawei in supplying other people. It creates risk for the United States. It's fair to say then that in those countries that are still developing, in the same way that they skipped the wired POTS type of telephone systems, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, going directly to wireless cellular, in the same way they're skipping the data center model and going straight to cloud? You know, um, cloud is going to be increasingly important for so many services. 5G networks depend on cloud. Artificial intelligence robotics depend on cloud. Logistics will increasingly rely on cloud. Now, what flavor of cloud is, of course, one of the competitive features? Is it is it uh, an American company? Is it in-house? Is it on-prem? What We are seeing a shift, a migration in how people use computing technology to the cloud. And that makes it a strategic issue for the United States. You know, if you are comfortable with having China dominate the global information infrastructure, okay, but I, I, I don't think most people are. 
Sure. There's an old saying about roads. You know, how many roads are in the United States? And the answer is one, because you can drive on any road from any other road just if you traverse the right turns. Same thing is true of networks, really. In some sense, there is only one network worldwide, increasingly more integrated. Does that mean that enclaves of U.S. only or protected types of cloud areas really are safe? Yeah, they're probably, you know, a, a protected cloud in the United States probably is safe, right? But the question is, no country is an island. And so if you want to do international business, you're going to go onto foreign networks. You're going to have to access or provide access to foreign clouds. And that creates the opportunity for mischief. So if you want to extend your statement, there really is only one network and it's global. And we're having a dispute now over whose technology, whose standards, whose norms will dominate that global network, ours or China's. We're speaking with Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President for the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And if you're, say, a vendor that has international sales and also sales to the federal government under some of the supply chain security initiatives, software supply chain security initiatives, that would seem to be a problem if, say, on your commercial side, you're totally fine with using a Chinese technology-based or even a China-based cloud provider. But then, you know, CMMC program, for example, that's going to mitigate against your ability to serve the federal government, I would think. You know, to their credit, the previous administration had uh, a clean network initiative that included clean cloud. And that was a recognition of the, the interconnections between American companies, foreign companies, and the problems that having a big Chinese presence in the cloud could create. So this isn't new. This is probably five or six years old that people have been thinking about it. Right now, the U.S. has a huge market share lead in many regions, not all, but many. And the Chinese hope to displace that. Some of their motive is commercial, clearly, but some of it is also a security motive. If you control the, the cloud, you have more influence, you have greater access to information. It just creates more risk. And so that's what the previous administration was trying to address. This administration is continuing with that. One dilemma we have, and you've seen this in other places as well, is China's willing to subsidize. China's willing to engage in predatory trade practices. So I've had foreign officials tell me, you know, the Chinese will show up. They will underbid Western companies by a significant margin, 20%, 30%. And that's hard to turn down. So there's an intention to make the world wired by China. And that's what we're having to push back against is one of the questions then whether Amazon, Google, Oracle, all of these companies that are cloud commercial providers invest in their own infrastructure using Chinese gear? You know, so far the use of Chinese equipment in the cloud isn't a big problem uh, because, for one thing, all the big leading U.S. cloud providers know the risks, and so they're going to seek to avoid that. That's been true for years. So the issue is not so much American cloud service providers, but more the people on the other end, you know, the companies in Latin America, the companies in Southeast Asia, uh, the companies in the Middle East. That's where Chinese tech providers have a lead, clear lead over Western companies. And that's where the risk is. 
So what what is the specific risk then if the commercial usage is Chinese-based over there in Asia, for example, in Africa, and say in the European Union and the United States, North America? It's not, and I don't know what South America is doing. What is the actual risk then to the United States? The risk is first espionage because you've got American companies accessing foreign networks that are based on Chinese technology that could be compromised. The second risk is influence. If it's the company that's building the highways for you or building the railroads, they're going to be more influential than the bystanders. The third is uh, standards, which is that if you buy Chinese cloud technology, the Chinese very often want you to buy related technology. So you end up with not just cloud, but with everything that appends to it uh, being Chinese. And the fear is they'll use it for market advantage the way they've done in other areas. So there's an economic danger here as well as a national security threat. Yeah, and one of the problems we're having in this discussion is economics and national security are blending in a way they weren't. I saw a paper recently that said that the U.S.'s central concern was national security. That's true, but the definition of national security is very different than it was 20 years ago. It includes economics. It includes technology. It includes things that don't fit under the rubric of defense. So we're being challenged in ways we're not accustomed to. Right. I think it was President Obama that pointed out somewhat wryly that, yes, it's the economy that pays for everything else, including defense. And that's where we are struggling, because the foundation of national security is the economy and economic strength and the ability to create new technologies, the ability to afford new technologies. And we've seen countries fall behind when they've made the wrong investment decisions. That will affect spectrum allocation. That will affect global standards. That will affect the purchase of cloud services. We, you know, people, everyone knows about TikTok. And so we can we can skip another TikTok commercial, but TikTok is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Chinese software being used in American products. Um, we have uh, interconnected economies. The Chinese have the same problem. I guess that's a comfort. Our economies are interconnected. We've spent 40 years building closer and closer connections. And so when you lift the hood up, um, a lot of IT has some piece of China in it. And sure. That raises concerns. So what should the United States do? Is there any policy recommendation that can strengthen the cloud position here? A lot of this comes back to rebuilding capacities we had uh, in the Cold War. And that doesn't mean doing exactly what we did in the Cold War. But um, when you look at foreign assistance, one reason people in other countries buy Chinese technology is that it's a lower price. It's subsidized. It comes with a lot of benefits, education, workforce, capital, uh, infrastructure. And we have to compete. But we have so many rules in place when it comes to foreign assistance that very often it's difficult for us to compete with the Chinese. The Chinese don't come in and ask questions about social issues or political issues. The Chinese don't care about bribery. Not to say maybe that we shouldn't care about bribery, but we're going to have to. We're used to a world where we were dominant and we didn't really have to compete. And so we could afford to impose rules that were peripheral to the larger question of security and economic growth. And we have to reconsider that. Yeah, I think one recent, maybe it was an African official who was quoted as saying, with the Chinese, we get an airport. With the Americans, we get a lecture. 
<laughs> and and that's and that wraps it up, folks. I've talked to African officials, and you know what I told them basically is, look, your key concern, and this is true for most of the developing world, your key concern is economic growth. And so, from a national interest perspective, you have to put that as a higher priority than American security. That sounds terrible, but coming in and telling people do something because it's good for the United States, strangely enough, doesn't have as much selling power as someone showing up and saying, I'm going to give you an airport. And I'm not going to look the other way if some of the money for that airport gets diverted to Switzerland. So we, um, we have not yet fully recognized that we're in a contest. Cloud is part of that. The Chinese will get better. They'll get a bigger market share. And that's not in our interest to see that happen. Jim Lewis is Senior Vice President for the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to his cloud analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, does the GSA have the best data to work with during price negotiations with contractors? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. A new report from the General Services Administration's Inspector General did not have many nice things to say about its multiple award schedules transactional data reporting pilot, first criticizing the agency for not using the data, then calling the data itself unusable. This left at least one contracting expert confused on the IG's true intent here. For more, we turn to Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. This is just the latest salvo from the GSA Office of the Inspector General uh, taking issue with GSA's transactional data reporting system. The best way to look at transactional data reporting, as you mentioned, TDR, is that it's an alternate path for companies seeking to obtain a GSA multiple award schedule contract. And this path uses market research to determine price reasonableness Uh, And yet we have the IG coming out with this latest report saying that GSA didn't rely on post-contract generated data and that the post-contract generated data that does exist isn't very good. So I think that the IG kind of missed the point. Market research is supposed to be the main way that prices are obtained on in the TDR path and While post-award sales data to the government may be somewhat useful, that's not really what the intention was in terms of using that information to determine schedule price reasonableness. And I also, I'm not really sure which part of this the IG is more aggravated with is the fact that GSA didn't use the data or that the data itself wasn't very good. So would they have been happier, for example, If GSA schedules people had used bad data, uh, that seems to be what the report suggests. So I just think it's a little confusing. And so what are you looking for? I know that you laid out uh, some of that uh, right there, but could the IG actually help maybe make some needed improvements to TDR information? Or, you know, is, is there room to improve there from what you've seen? I'm sure there's room to improve in terms of the type of data that's collected and, and how it's used. GSA, though, for one part, is already starting to stand up its price comparison database, which has always been the long-term objective of the TDR program. That's going to be a tool that helps 
federal customers decide whether or not they're getting a good deal on a schedule offer. Those are the prices that are actually paid at the task order level, regardless of what the contract level pricing might be. So GSA standing that tool up. Another thing that they've done in terms of uh, ensuring that contract level pricing is good is that they've developed their own, it's called a 4P pricing tool. And GSA has developed that tool. So it's not as if they need to rely on TDR data to determine price reasonableness. They don't. The people that run the schedules program have gone ahead and created their own mechanisms, their own ways to assess price reasonableness. I'm hoping that the IG will look at those. Frankly, Eric, I think one of the things that I'm a little concerned about is the consistent stridency with which the IG has taken issue with the TDR approach may have blinded their ability to be impartial and to look at areas where they could actually make some positive comments. And is it the case of where more information is always good, even if it's not necessarily the most up-to-date information? I mean, will it help, you know, regardless of how badly the IG thinks the information is? Well, I think you really hit something there, Eric. The idea about, you know, it's one thing to collect the information. It's another to be able to use it. So uh, at some point, are we more interested in just gathering a never-ending stream of information or are we actually going to set up systems and protocols that enable us to use the information we already have? So it's not just that, you know, we, we get data, it's how do we use that data? And then I think the larger part of that kind of discussion is what role does the data analysis play in helping determine price reasonableness? Certainly good data analysis is going to be a key part of that equation, But I never want to get to the point where we use data as its own self-executing reason for existing. And what I mean by that is data and data analysis is a tool, a tool that contracting officers can use in their process of determining price reasonableness. The tool should not become the self-executing end-all, be-all. It should just be a tool And ultimately, the contracting officer should be able to use his or her own judgment in awarding contract. Got it. All right. And so that's talking about the GSA's role in federal contracting. But there's another agency that is taking a bigger stand in the federal contracting process. And it may not be one that folks immediately think of when they think of federal contracting, is it? No, Eric, it's not. And here we're talking about the Environmental Protection Agency and the growing role that EPA rules play and will play in the lives of government contractors. I'm telling my clients, the people that read my newsletter, that uh, they should definitely be adding the EPA to the list of government agencies that they look at in terms of those that can add burdens and requirements to your government contracts. And why is that? Well, we've already seen the EPA come out with a proposed greenhouse gas rule. And even though that rule isn't finalized yet, it's already the whole mechanism of greenhouse gas tracking and reporting has already started making its way into a couple of contracts. Uh, So it's not mandatory now, but it will be once the rule is finalized. And, you know, companies are going, depending on the type of company and the size uh, of your company, 
you're going to have to track your greenhouse gas emissions and then uh, report on them. And if you're a big enough company, you're going to have to tell the government what your mitigation strategies are going to be for that. But moving beyond that, Eric, that's just the kind of the first salvo. We're getting into things like sustainability and sustainability report cards for government contractors. You know, how sustainable are your uh, manufacturing processes? How sustainable are the service practices that you have if you're a service company? EPA is developing a report card for some of the largest government contractors. Whether you're a large contractor or not, the creation of that report card is certainly going to have a major impact on companies and how they approach the market because federal customers are going to want to know how are you doing on the report card, even if you're not one of the ones that appears on the report card? We've seen these rules before, um, and you know sometimes they have a little bit more teeth than usual. You know, sometimes companies may think, "Oh, well, we just maybe need to just wait out for another administration or something like that." But is this something that is definitely here to stay, and this is going to be something that, as you mentioned, contractors are going to have to take into account when doing business with the government? Eric, I think it's here for the foreseeable future. You know, certainly priorities come and go with the different with different administrations. Uh, I'm not sure that I see this going away just because we might have a, a change in administration down the road. You know, we may not either. And you know, there are other things that stayed in government procurement, regardless who. Uh, sat in the White House. You know, category management, for example, started as an Obama administration initiative and kept right on going through the Trump administration and is still with us now in the Biden administration. So this whole role of environmental risk factors and uh, how government contractors work in terms of being environmentally responsible corporate citizens, some element of that, I think, is always going to be here, whether it is as highly emphasized as it's being now, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Something that does matter when, who's in the White House is uh, when there is a split government and there's often in the last decade or so these debt ceiling showdowns. And what is the latest that you are telling folks and your clients about You know where things stand at the moment? Eric, I think the good news, to the extent that there is any good news on this front, is that all the parties are starting to talk to each other this week. Uh, we've got a whole group of people that have collected on Monday at the White House uh, to talk about uh, the debt ceiling issue. Hopefully that uh, will start to produce something productive. It's going to take negotiations. The House, after all, did pass a piece of legislation that set out certain parameters for how they viewed a debt ceiling increase moving forward. The Senate's going to have to respond with uh, its own version of it. I think the big thing here is we just don't have a lot of time. We have a month, probably a little bit less than a month, before we hit that X date that the Department of Treasury always tells us about. I think the impact on contractors, though, is going to be felt even before we get to the X date. Agencies are going to have to do continuity of operations planning. They're going to have to do that now. That's increasingly going to take mid and senior level managers away from doing their, quote, day job, end quote. And they're going to have to do that continuity planning in case their agencies actually do have to 
partially or totally shut down because they can't pay their employees, you know, which is one of the things that could definitely happen under a, a debt default. You know, the government has to be selective about what bills it pays. So we'll have to, to think about that. But I definitely think the contractor should anticipate seeing an impact now, regardless of whether or not we get to an agreement. Last time we had this situation, Eric, with one party controlling the White House and another party controlling the House of Representatives, we got an agreement on the debt ceiling issue on X day. I'm not anticipating that we're going to be a whole lot different this time. It would be great to have an agreement of the day before X day, but that's going to be up to our political leaders. I think, though, that it is good to know that last time around, it really went up to the 11th hour plus. So hold on to your seats. It's going to be a bumpy ride. All right. Larry Allen with Allen Federal. Thank you so much as always. Eric, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. In case you missed any part of this interview or would like to share it with a colleague, you can find it at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.